Hi guys, welcome back to episode 87 at the True Crime B&B. This is Beth, and I literally have not recorded anything since Marianne and I recorded the second week of December 2023. So I'm a little bit out of practice, so if I sound a little bit out of practice, that's why. And I had a terrible flu or COVID or something two weeks ago, and my voice is still a little bit husky. So bear with me, and we will do this thing. Today I am bringing you the story of a survivor in Canada, in Ontario. David Alexander was born in 1952 and grew up in Ireland. In 1973, at the age of 21, David made a holiday trip to visit the Isle of Man, which sits in the middle of the Irish Sea. He had traveled to the island for this vacation and had randomly and kind of unexpectedly found himself on the stage of a hypnotist's act. The stage was crowded with tourists, and the hypnotist was working the audience, and he was trying to entrance the members of the audience who had come up to be volunteers on stage. The hypnotist had somehow gotten around to David and was working at trying to hypnotize David along with a random woman who was standing next to him on the stage. David didn't know the woman. She was an absolute stranger to him, but she said her name was Christine. Although the hypnotism did not work on either of them, it was something to laugh and talk about later after the show was over, as the two made proper introductions and started to get to know one another. Christine, who was two years older than David, had grown up in Scotland, where she still lived, and she had also visited the Isle of Man on her own holiday trip. It was a very nice turn of events for both of them, because David and Christine really hit it off. They started off long distance, he in Ireland, she in Scotland, calling and visiting one another, and eventually the two got very, very serious and married in Scotland. Shortly after their marriage, they decided to move all the way to Canada, where they built a new life together and started a family. They managed over the years to build up a tidy nest egg and purchase three houses, and the family lived well in their Bowmanville, Ontario home. At the beginning of their relationship, the couple had been blissful and inseparable. Christine was a wonderful wife. David was a good husband. He was a mechanic. They had a good and fairly prosperous life. They were very happy. They were good parents, too. They had two sons together. They loved their children, and they loved one another. After 17 years of marriage, despite all the love that existed between the two of them, Abusive behavior started to appear in the relationship. In most of the cases we discuss on this podcast, when there's an abusive relationship, the victim of a murder attempt or physical harm is usually the female partner. But the fact is that men are often victims of abuse just as women are. Men tend not to tell their stories. It's hard enough for women but it's not something that men might feel able to discuss with their friends because of traditional societal expectations. They might fear appearing weak. Also, violence by women towards men is less likely to result in serious harm to the man, mainly because the size and strength of an average man usually exceeds the size and strength of an average woman. It's believed that cases of abused male partners are seriously underreported, and that often they never come to light until there has been a weapon introduced that causes serious bodily harm to the man. And so it was with David. Christine had begun showing abusive tendencies in the last five years of their marriage, 
but David didn't hate her for it. He was confused about where this behavior was coming from. He felt she needed some sort of help. He thought he could help find the key to help her return to the person he had fallen in love with, the good wife, the good mother, the kind and intimate friend. In about 1990, there had begun being heated arguments. The two began having raucous shouting matches. Christine started adding threats into her screaming fits. After a while, she started to push or hit David when she was angry. Some of the abuses he suffered were painful. Some of them were very frightening. She had attacked him with a knife. She had thrown a wrench at him. She had come into the bathroom while he was in the shower and pointed a rifle at him. He feared what she might do next, but he really loved her and he wanted to help her. Again, he thought she needed help, but he didn't know how to get it for her. David tolerated and suffered through Christine's abuse for years. He never reported her. He never turned her in. He never struck her back. There were times when he had restrained her momentarily when she was out of control, but again, he simply wanted to keep her from acting this way, to prevent her from going beyond the point of no return. He wanted his loving wife back. He thought there must be a way to help her. But eventually he started to understand that he could not save Christine. He couldn't fix her. She was only going to get help if she realized there was a problem and got help for herself. But David was exhausted from the constant drama and violent potential of every day. And his sons at this point were 13 and 15 years old, and he didn't want them growing up watching this kind of behavior and thinking it's normal behavior. David finally gave up his hope that he could help her and decided that he wanted a separation from Christine. So by October 1995, Christine and David had finally separated. David had been staying at the home of a friend to give Christine some time to figure out what she was going to do next. And Christine had stayed during this time in the house that they had shared. On November the 5th, 1995, the day that Christine was to finally move out, David came back to the house in the afternoon to help Christine collect the last of her belongings and packed them into her car, and then she would be on her way. Although their 22-year-long marriage by this point had been rocky and violent for five years, Christine was unusually warm and friendly towards David on this moving day. He had never stopped loving her, but he had made up his mind about the divorce. But today, Christine seemed to be in a mentally healthier place. She was engaging and sweet, she seemed appreciative that David was there to help her. The two of them talked, had a real conversation, and David felt closer to his wife than he had in years. With the frayed connection between them feeling clearer and closer than it had felt in a long, long time, they ended up having sex. After they finished, Christine told David to remember the good things and begged him not to divorce her. She wanted to try to reconcile, but in David's heart, he knew that ship had sailed. He did not want or intend to stay with Christine. They were not going to reconcile. After this conversation, David started to resume the moving process. He made a trip down into the basement to bring up some things. He turned around to find Christine behind him, pointing a twenty-two caliber Cooey hunting rifle at him. She had David cornered, and there was nowhere he could run to get away from her. She had pointed a gun at him before, 
So while he was alarmed and angry that she was doing this, he didn't immediately think she would actually shoot him. But we all know that an abused partner is in the absolute highest level of danger when they actually take steps to break off the relationship. Christine did not want to lose control. She did not want to lose David. And she was not acting rationally. Christine pulled the trigger, and the bullet tore through David's jaw. The shock of being shot dazed him. He stumbled in disbelief. He was terrified, hurt, shattered emotionally. He had just made love with this woman, and now she had shot him in the face. David, in a state of shock and confusion, saw Christine wildly raising and then swinging the rifle butt at him, over and over, screaming at him, I'm sorry, I love you. If I can't have you, then nobody can. David fell to the floor, tearing off a piece of a basement door on his way down, trying to grab something, anything, to protect himself from further injury. But Christine just kept hitting him with the butt of the rifle. She hadn't managed to kill him with the gunshot, but she was brutally trying to finish him off. Christine abruptly paused her furious attack and ran out of the basement as if she suddenly realized what she was doing. David managed to find his feet and stand. He somehow climbed the stairs and walked himself through the house. He knew he needed to get out of the house and outside to safety. He knew he desperately needed medical help. As he went out through the door of the house to the outside, he lurched in the direction of the neighbor's house. He couldn't make it all the way to the door. He knew he wouldn't get that far. He was losing blood and had been beaten half unconscious, and he was starting to gray out. Knowing someone had to find him and they needed to know what had happened to him in case he didn't make it, David took out a scrap of paper from his pocket and wrote a note to whomever found him. It had been his wife, Christine, who had shot him. The neighbors had seen Christine run out of the house, but David had gone out towards the back. Next-door neighbor Nick Chapman came outside to find David collapsed near his back door stoop, covered with blood. Nick called for help, and paramedics rushed David to the hospital in serious to critical condition. Nick's wife Gail thought there was so much blood that it looked like the bullet had gone in one side and out the other. At the hospital, doctors immediately started trying to assess the full range of his injuries and took him into surgery to repair the most critical damage, which was his carotid artery that had been cut. They had to stop this bleeding in order to save his life. The bullet had gone in through his jaw, then cut his carotid artery, and finally stopped just two millimeters short of going through his spine. But it was too risky to remove the bullet, so it remained in his neck. David had to go through another surgery to repair his jaw, but it couldn't be fully restored and he couldn't even close his jaw completely. He had this devastating trauma to his face, which was somewhat repaired with reconstructive surgery, but he still has a distortion on the right side of his face. He had nerve damage that makes it difficult for him to control some of his facial muscles. Christine was arrested and held on remand for two years, waiting for trial. It was discovered that a week before the attempt on David's life, she had taken the Kui hunting rifle to the Ganyan sports store in Oshawa, desperately asking them to fix it quickly for her. She really wanted it back. 
At trial, Christine was convicted of attempted murder, along with assault and firearm offenses. She admitted she had not shot David in self-defense, but said she couldn't remember exactly why she had. Christine said, quote, I remember I just felt really empty, like a robot. I never wanted him dead. David, understandably, went through with the divorce. The time in between the shooting and the verdict were like a long nightmare for David. He felt like he had been sleeping the whole time and he kept waiting for the alarm to go off and wake him up. At Christine's sentencing a month after the verdict, she was sentenced to two years minus one day on top of the two years of time served while being held in pretrial custody. She ended up serving 16 months of the 24 she was sentenced to and was released on parole in April 1999. Christine was listed as a high-risk offender likely to become violent and was ordered to contact neither David nor her two sons. She was prohibited from owning or possessing firearms. And because having a woman serve a prison sentence for abusing and nearly killing her partner was extremely uncommon at that time, as part of her parole, she was also directed to participate in three public symposiums where she was to present her story to help bring awareness and combat domestic violence. David was unable to work at all for quite a long time because of his injuries. He had chronic headaches, anxiety, and short-term memory loss. He had been unable to continue working as a mechanic at all because the physical work was just too much with a bullet still in his neck. He had had to take on a much lower paying job. He was keeping his head above water by working as a security guard, but he didn't have much extra. David had to sell two of the three houses he owned. He used the proceeds from the houses to pay off bills and was just trying to keep it together. But then in January 2001, less than two years after Christine had been released from her prison sentence, David found that he had been served with legal papers. He couldn't believe what he was reading. Christine had filed a claim for spousal support because she hadn't been working since she had been released from prison. David told the Daily News, quote, As if the shooting wasn't enough, now she comes after me for whatever I've got left. David was flabbergasted, the gall of this woman. He had built a wonderful life for their family. She had destroyed it with violence. She had tried to kill him, left him with permanent injuries and disfigurement. She had destroyed his livelihood, and now she expected him to support her on half of his previous income. Four years after they had been divorced and she served time in prison for trying to kill him, it was just outrageous. Except that it wasn't outrageous based on the law. The Canadian Spousal Support Law the Canada Divorce Act, known in Ontario as Ontario's Family Law Act, prohibited consideration of misconduct of either spouse in ruling on entitlement to spousal support. They couldn't consider infidelity, abuse, addiction, financial fraud, etc., but the court would consider the financial situations of the parties involved. Although David's standard of living was lower than it had been while he had been a mechanic making higher pay, Christine had no assets after coming out of prison. She was staying at a women's shelter and was receiving $535 Canadian monthly in social assistance, 
Christine had lost all claims to the two additional marital properties in a previous court order. She had been living hand-to-mouth in Oshawa for the two years since her parole began, and her lawyers saw her as David's responsibility, even after all she had done to him. Her lawyer argued that based on Section 15 of the Divorce Act, the shooting was irrelevant. David's attorneys responded to the support claim by stating that five years had passed since the date of separation as a consequence of the unconscionable treatment he had received throughout the course of their marriage, including numerous acts of violence and her ultimate attempt to terminate David's life. They further argued that Christine's attempt to kill David establishes, quote, an obvious and gross repudiation of the marriage and said that even if the law considered Christine eligible to claim support, quote, it ought to be fixed at zero. The lawyers also argued that the judge should consider who suffered here and why. David was still living with the pain of the injuries Christine had inflicted upon him. David had had to undergo reconstructive surgeries to rebuild his face where the bullet tore through it. David had lost his source of livelihood, a career he had excelled at and could no longer practice. Christine's life situation was of her own making. She had brought her poverty upon herself. The intent of Canada's Divorce Act was to be a safety net for a partner who, say, stayed home for 15 years and ran the household and raised the children, not building a career or any kind of work resume. In the past, men would build a strong career and amass wealth and then in their divorce they would claim infidelity by their wives, and then the wives wouldn't receive any support out of the wealth that was built with their domestic assistance. The goal of the law seems to be to keep the unsupported partner from ending up on public assistance while their ex lives a life of luxury. But when the law says not to consider wrongdoing, or injury, or attempted murder in the distribution of financial means, the intent of the law gets lost. It becomes a caricature of good intent that can be exploited by bad people. And based on a search of current Canadian spousal support laws, it appears as if the court will still not consider spousal misconduct when awarding spousal support. David said, quote, It is ludicrous. First you get shot and you survive, and three or four years later she comes at me for spousal support. I think she wants to get even. What if I didn't pull through this? Where would she be today? David's sons, by this time 19 and 21 years old, said that while they still love their mother, they wish she would leave their father alone and stop coming after him. The oldest, also named David, said, She needs help, not money. And in the end, the judge at the Oshawa family court saw that Christine's financial situation had been wholly caused by Christine's own actions. Her claim was dismissed because the attack on David's life was a repudiation of their marriage. She was awarded no support. And naturally, Christine saw herself as the victim. She was victimized by the judge who awarded her not one cent. She complained about people thinking she was the bad guy for shooting her husband in the face. She claimed that all along it had been David who had been abusive, but this was completely without support. She thought she was being victimized by the courts for not giving her the money from the sale of the houses, the two houses that David had had to sell to pay his bills and stay afloat until he could start working and find a job again. 
She said the police were harassing and assaulting her. She played the victim when the Ministry of Community and Social Services sent her a letter of conditions she had to meet in order to keep receiving her social assistance money. Of course, all she had to do was to meet their conditions and she would continue to receive it, like everyone else. But Christine didn't think she should have to do anything and complained that they were out to get her. But in the end, David received the satisfaction of seeing Christine's claims go unpaid. He and the boys continued living their lives, and Christine fell back into the woodwork and stopped doing things that would put her into the news. David suffers headaches that he is likely to have for the rest of his life. He appears to have moved to Spain. One of his sons is in Northern Ireland, and the other stayed in Oshawa. The boys seem to have reconciled with their mother. I can't be sure of where Christine is now. The little family who had been happy and loving up until 1990 has now scattered to the wind. And who knows if David and Christine would have still been together if not for the ugliness that Christine brought into their marriage. But the fact is that David was lucky he got out of it alive. Christine may have never raised a hand to another person in her entire life, but she came very close to extinguishing David's life. The escalation of abuse is a frightening thing. The true crime community is for the most part very aware of the danger that an abused partner is in. We know that leaving and ending the relationship is the most perilous time for that person because the abuser who has lost all control also has nothing left to lose. David Alexander is a good man, a good father, and was a good husband. He did not deserve any of what happened to him any more than female abuse victims deserve the awful things that happened to them. David Alexander's case was the first case recorded in the Durham region of Canada, citing a husband as the victim of domestic abuse. He certainly wasn't the first abused husband, but it was the first abused husband case that had gone to trial in the Durham region, which is ranked second highest in Canada for the total number of domestic abuse cases. But as I touched on before, most women don't report their abuse. Almost no men report their abuse. If you are being abused or if you have reasons to fear your partner, please reach out in the U.S. at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. In Canada, there are many very specific resources for all the different provinces, for women and girls, for men and boys, for transgender individuals, for indigenous people. So you can Google Domestic Violence Help Canada to quickly find all these different resources. There are just too many to list here. But remember that if you're being abused, you should not feel shame. Being abused does not make you weak. It makes you vulnerable, and the abuser is counting on your feeling paralyzed to do anything about it. It prevents many people from being able to share what's happening to them. If someone says anything to an abuse victim, that victim may even protect and defend their abuser. This is common behavior. If you've done this in the past, it's never too late to reach out for help. Even if you're not sure what you're experiencing is abuse, please check the resources. Some things that may be precursors to abuse are warning signs and should not be ignored. This is all a lot of talk on my part to remind everyone that you matter. Your well-being matters and no one has the right to hurt you, intimidate you, or threaten you. 
And if you witness the abuse of someone else, you can also call these same resources and ask for advice on how to help or how to support the person in a way that won't endanger them further. Please take care of yourself, your loved ones, and please support your local domestic violence shelters. Offer whatever light you have to make someone else's world a little bit less treacherous. I love you guys. Thanks for popping back into the B&B for episode 87. I'll see you back here in a couple more weeks. Bye. No bloopers tonight in my podcast. No bloopers tonight. We're funny. Doot and doot and doot and doot 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 and doot and doot. Sorry.